You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. It's time to give field uh, questions, right, from you to the uh, to the naked scientists. So whatever's been on your mind, whatever you want clarified, um, uh, send those messages to three one seven zero two. Better yet, to give us a call on zero one one eight eight three zero seven zero two. We want to hear from you. Of course, we know that Chris Smith, the naked scientist, is the chair of science at the University of Cambridge with encyclopedic knowledge of. My goodness, everything. Uh, Chris, good afternoon. <laughs> Hello again. It's really good to catch up. It's very good to catch up. And, uh, you know, I, I was saying earlier on, I've never heard you stymied by a, a question <laughs> from listeners. So I just encourage them to just polish off those gems, find something, find a whopper <laughs> if they can. But I really, really enjoy how you just break everything down for us. So let's head straight to the phone lines. We've got Joe in Kilani, who's got a COVID question. Welcome to the program, Joe. Go ahead and speak to Chris. Uh, hello, Chris. How are you? I'm very uh, well, Chris, thank I you, Joe. Go ahead. I want to ask you about the official UK policy with regard to uh, vaccinating foreigners, people who are not UK citizens, uh, what are the implications of not doing so? Would it pose a threat to the general population? Is it advisable to vaccinate everybody irrespective of their uh, citizenship? Mm. It makes sense in the long term to vaccinate everybody. And it's certainly the case that that is our route out of the pandemic, because if we don't get as many vaccines into as many people as possible, we are going to see the India situation and the South America situation continuing to smolder on and on and on. And as it's been put many times really accurately, Mm -hmm. it's not over anywhere till it's over everywhere. Now, in terms of local countries and local policies, now, it's not trivial to do vaccine rollouts to make sure that people turn up when they should and you get vaccines into people. It's really critical that uh, there's a policy in place and people follow that policy. In an ideal world, yes, everyone would get vaccinated straight away, but you can't always make policies for edge cases. And and I hope that countries have got policies to help as many people as possible, but it's not always possible to create a system with no gaps for people to fall into. So I know that's a slightly diplomatic answer <laughs> because every country is going to be different, sure. but the answer is in the long run, we have got to vaccinate everybody because otherwise we just won't get out of this. Yeah, and of course the added challenge there, Chris, being uh, coming back for that second jab, right? So important. Yes, although the the bottom line is once most people go for jab one, then they're very heavily committed already and they're much more likely to turn up for jab two because you're you're dealing with a population of people who are already very invested yes. in wanting to get vaccinated. What the US are finding is that they've got to about the two thirds, three quarters of the population proportion. And exactly as everyone predicted who's who's tried to do kind of big vaccination programs in the past, they're now struggling to get those final people over the line. Mm. And this is for a range of reasons why this happens. And I anticipate that many countries are going to see this, that um, you get to about 70, 75 percent of the population and you, you've then got to, to work much harder yeah. to get that final 25 percent. But it does make all the difference because you then really heavily bear down on the transmission of the infection countrywide. And this stops the chain of transmission. So you don't just stop people going into hospital becoming very unwell. You stop the disease spreading across the country, which then feeds back on itself. Mm -hmm. It means that even fewer people end up in hospital full stop, which has got to be a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Let's uh, head on over to Subu in Krugersdorp. Welcome to the program. You've got a question around microwaves and Bluetooth. 
Shoot. Yes, hi, Rikile. Thank you so much. Um, Chris, I, I just wanted to find out, I, I've recently replaced um, microwave oven, and in this new one, it tends to interfere with my Bluetooth um, connectivity. So I just wanted to find out why you're doing that, and then um, is it safe? Am I, am, I, am I cooking while I'm standing next to it, or is it just, um, yeah? Um, the answer to this question is that the microwave oven uses a frequency of microwaves about 2.45 gigahertz. So in other words, it makes two and a half-ish billion waves every single second. That's the same regime that Wi-Fi uses and I think Bluetooth uses as well. So in other words, a safe transmission regime, a common transmission regime, but microwave ovens should be shielded so that the microwaves that they're using are contained and confined within the cooking compartment there shouldn't be any spillover at appreciable levels into the environment so it might not though be the microwaves themselves that are interfering with your device there could be some other source of interference which is tripping up your device i don't know the answer is the bottom line but hopefully it shouldn't interfere because of containment and confinement but if it is interfering, maybe you should get the microwave oven checked. If it's brand new, it's very unlikely to have any kind of problem. But if this is an old sort of new microwave, so in other words, you've bought it secondhand from somebody else, it might not have the same stringent safety applied to it. So you need to get that checked. Okay. All right. Thanks for that question, Spool. Um, Mzwandile is, uh, has a question regarding COVID and sportsmen. Good afternoon. Welcome. Uh, good afternoon, Rafina uh, and uh Dr. Chris, I have a question regarding um, um, COVID-19 and, uh, you know, how it, it spreads or, or, yeah, how it spreads in terms of uh, people infecting one another. I've noticed that um, football has returned, uh, even though uh, supporters are not allowed back at the stadiums, but players do play. And there's a lot, there's a lot of physical contact, I'm sure, there definitely, whether in South Africa or wherever in the world, I have not heard any reports uh, that there has been, um, you know, um, COVID-19 uh, infection among football players as a result of them playing together on the same pitch. Uh, yet we know that mm-hmm. one of the one of the protocols is that we, people are encouraged to social distance. I don't think much of that happens. Sure. On a, when people are playing football, and yet we're not hearing that they get infected as a result. I want to know how, yeah, an explanation on that, please. The answer is that in order to, to catch something you don't have, you have to have sufficiently long and close contact with somebody who's infectious for that entity for transmission to occur. Mm-hmm. We know that the new coronavirus is chiefly a respiratory infection. And I say chiefly because it can land on surfaces. You can pick it up from those surfaces. And if you transfer virus picked up from a surface to your eyes, nose or mouth, you could transmit it to yourself that way. But most of the transmissions are almost certainly occurring through the respiratory route. And that means droplets and fine particles of virus on air currents in the room being breathed in by you with them having been breathed out by somebody else. Now, the likelihood of that happening is greatest when you share air for a long time indoors because if you're indoors the same air goes round and round and round like a whirlpool for a long time the air is limited in volume so you quite quickly reach quite a high concentration of virus in the air 
and this means you're quite likely to breathe in what we call an infectious dose, a sufficient number of viruses to really increase the likelihood beyond it being odds-on that you're going to catch the infection. When you're outside, the likelihood of that happening is much, much lower. And it's much, much lower because there are dilution effects because the wind blows away virus particles quite quickly and they just float off. Often the air is more humid because we haven't got air conditioning and so on. And if you have more humid air, more humid air makes droplets quite quickly get too big to stay suspended and they fall to the floor so no one can breathe them in. And also in some places, and Joe Berg's a good example of this, you've got a higher level of UV radiation and higher temperatures. And if you have those uh, in, in the environment, it is not compatible with long-term survival of virus particles. So they tend to expire faster. So the infectivity falls off quicker. Mm. So on the pitch, it is not impossible to transmit infection. You're just shifting the balance of probability more towards unlikely, but not impossible because there's always some risk. But off the pitch, there's still that potential. So there's the changing room situation. There's the socialization side of it. And one way to get around this, which some sporting entities have followed, is that they have put people into a giant bubble. So I was dealing with uh, Formula One last year mm -hmm. and I was um, talking to somebody who's a medical advisor for Formula One. And in order to get the teams to operate when you're employing hundreds of people to maintain a Formula One car, they had to put all of them in a hotel as though sure. they were one giant family yeah. all living together. Because then if no one's got it and they share air with somebody, they're not going to give it to anybody else. And, and that's the price you pay. But if you've got people coming and going and having a normal life, very, very difficult to break that chain of transmission. So that is why they've said we can't have one rule for one, one for another. But there certainly have been cases of COVID in footballers. And I've, I've been on the radio when there have been, you know, Premier League teams have yeah. had cases in some of their players. Yeah. And, um, and it's been speculated upon where they got it and who they may have given it to. Yeah, and of course, hence all any gatherings, uh, the recommendation is do it outdoors as much as possible, right? Absolutely. Absolutely right. Let's uh, take a voice note now. Uh, let's hear it. Hi, uh, it's Rian from Pretoria. I've got a question for the Naked Scientist. Uh, please tell us why do, have, why do people have hair on dark places like armpits, etc. Cheers. Uh-huh. Why do we have hair in those hidden places? <laughs> hair where the sun don't shine. Yep. The answer is mostly where you have body hair other than on your head, but including on your head. Mostly it's in sweaty places. And in the sweaty places, it does a couple of things. One is it soaks up the sweat and that means that the water doesn't hang around because if you're too wet in one area for too long, it actually makes the skin uh, more likely to injure itself. When you've got skin sliding over wet skin, it, it can get sore. So if you soak up the sweat and if you've got hair, you can soak up the sweat and then evaporate the sweat because a big surface area means you've got much bigger surface to let the air evaporate off your body. This means that the sweaty places where water might collect are kept drier than they otherwise would and they dry out more quickly. And the other point is that you have the use, use of that same mechanism to broadcast your virility and fitness to reproduce because in areas where you have your sweaty bits and hair, mm -hmm. you also have a certain collection of glands which are called apocrine sweat glands. These are different to just the water-producing sweat glands, which are called eccrine sweat glands. These apocrine sweat glands make a fattier material which tends to get stinkier. And it is a m 
kind of signal to other individuals that you're big and strong or and virile or fit and beautiful and would be ideal as a mating partner. So it's basically <laughs> an element of sexual attraction as well. And if you've got hair there, then you can, again, help this stuff to diffuse off into the air and uh, to broadcast your fitness as a mate to all, right. all and sundry around you. Definitely all serves a purpose. Now, we've got eight-year-old Razine from Randburg on the line. Welcome to the program, Razine. Thanks for calling in. What's your question? Today, I want to ask the naked scientist, why should I study to become like him? And how did he become the naked scientist? And how many PhDs does he have? <laughs> Thank you, Razine. Hi, hi Razine. The answer is, I started off uh, going to medical school. And while I was at medical school, I did an extra degree in neuroscience, how the brain works, because I was fascinated by that. And then I did a PhD in viruses because I was fascinated with how infections work. And then I finished doing medicine and, and became a junior doctor. And while I was being a junior doctor, I then became a specialist in viruses and infectious diseases. And uh, then along the way, I also got given uh, an honorary doctorate by the university medical school that I first started at when I first started my training. So you could say I'm doctor, doctor, doctor. <laughs> Razine, I hope that helps. Uh, I, clearly, I think you're inspired by uh, the Naked Scientist. So give us a call in a couple of years when you finally decided what area of specialization you want to go into. Nice one there. Thanks for calling. Uh, let's go to Mtunzi in Boxburg, who's got a question also about Wi-Fi. Good afternoon, Mtunzi. Hi, Rasulia. Um, in, in the topic of radiation, I want to know from the doctor, can Wi-Fi give you a headache? Um, yeah, or having your phone under your pillow, just putting the phone under your pillow, can one get a headache from that type of radiation? Mm. Hi, hi Tuzi. The answer is that we are comfortable that the radiation that is produced by mobile devices and Wi-Fi yeah. devices is not harmful to health. And the evidence for that is that for something to be health harmful, there must be what is called a dose-dependent effect. In other words, the more of something that someone is exposed to, the more of the bad outcome you would expect to see. So we would expect to see, with the increase in uptake of mobile devices, of Bluetooth devices, of Wi-Fi, we can measure how much exposure there is from that sort of radiation and the general population, and we can compare it to different health outcomes. And if there is this dose-dependent relationship, we would expect there to be an uptick in the level of the negative health outcome alongside the use of that form of radiation. People are looking really, really hard to see if there are any of these sorts of connections. And at the moment, they haven't found any association. Mm. Now, that's not to say that there isn't a really small association. It's not to say there isn't an association with something that we haven't studied yet. So that's why it's important to keep looking. But it also aligns with what we understand about the biology, because these forms of electromagnetic radiation, microwaves, yeah. are chosen because they are judged to be safe because what we understand about their impact on chemis chemistry and your biochemistry is those forms of radiation are not what we call ionizing. They ha haven't got enough energy in the wave to, to rip apart molecules and cause damage to your DNA. Uh, and similar things. So that's why we feel that both the biology, the biochemistry, the chemistry and the epidemiology all align and, and agree that there isn't a risk from this. But that's not to say there might not be individual consequences. If you're sleeping with a phone under your pillow 
and without you realizing it's buzzing or making heat or disturbing your sleep having poor sleep is going to cause a headache if being so switched onto your phone all the time is making you stressed then stress is going to cause a tension headache. Mm. So there's a range of things that could be attributable, which are not directly because of the radiation output from a device, but are because of its impact on your behavior and, and how you live your life in other ways. So it's probably worth your while if you are having headaches and you, you think, well, it's when I use my phone a lot, it's worth thinking, well, maybe I reduce my phone use a bit because it might be that when I'm using my phone a lot, it's making me very stressed or mm. work are ringing me up a lot and, and um, making me feel nervous or uh, overloading me with things to do. And that's causing the headache rather than anything coming out of the phone. Sure. Or visit, an, visit your optometrist. It could be time to get the, those prescription glasses. I know. <laughs> Squinting at the phone oh, will do that to you as well. <laughs> All right. Let's go to Shane in Malbarton. Fascinating questions. You've, a question you've got. Uh, welcome to the program. Hi, this is Ray. Hi, doctor. Hi. I just want to find out, um, how does a dog know where to go and retrieve a bone from after he's buried it months ago? Hmm. How does I, I didn't it, catch the whole question. So Shane is asking, how does a dog know where to retrieve a bone that it's buried a long time ago? Do dogs just have a special memory for this? Is it simply olfactory? What, what's happening there with dogs and their bones? Well, I've trained my dog to go and get his dinner dish mm -hmm. when it's dinner time or when we say go and get your bowl or go and get your dish. I stopped using bowl because he couldn't tell the difference between bowl and ball sometimes. <laughs> so sometimes you'd, you'd get, he'd say go and get your bowl and he'd come back with a ball and he'd say no, 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 I want the, the, the dish. Sure. So anyway, he, he now goes and gets the dish when he's hungry but sometimes when you say to him go and get your dish and he hasn't got the foggiest, you can tell he has not got the foggiest what he's done with his dish uh -huh. and he'll go round and round and so he can't find it. So I think dogs haven't got a very good memory for where they've put stuff. But some animals definitely do. Sure. Um, there are jays, for instance, scrub jays, which are members of the crow family, which have an exceptional memory for where they've hidden stuff. And they remember where they've hidden stuff. And they even remember if someone was watching them when they hid it, and if they were, they go back to where they hid the stuff earlier when no one is watching them, dig it up, move it so that no one will nick it later because they have an extraordinary memory for where they put things. Mm. How do dogs do it? Well, dog, dogs have an exceptional sense of smell. Uh -huh, there you go. So the likelihood is that probably they use other cues. Dogs definitely have a good memory for things. They remember their way around. They remember where they live. They remember who their owners sure. smell like. But they probably don't remember precisely where they put stuff, but they can use those other extraordinary senses and integrate those cues to, to find things or find things they want. So I suspect that when they go and dig up a bone, they're probably smelling the fact that there's a bone there. They're not remembering, ah, oh, I put that bone there before <laughs> and I'm going back for it. But if they are a scrub jay, they absolutely would. So no mental map of the garden and where the hidden treasures are. Uh, let's go to Michael in Riddiford. Welcome to the program. You've got a question about air dryers. Yeah, good afternoon. I'd just like to find out if the, the air dryers in the bathrooms, if they spread um, COVID more rapidly or, or are they healthy to use? Uh, Michael, the answer is that anything that stirs up air in the environment has the potential to help and hasten the spread of anything. And that could be a bad smell right through to uh, an infection. So the answer is if the bathroom is completely clean, then the hand dryer is not going to do anything. But if the bathroom is contaminated with other things that you don't want to mix up with the rest of the air in the room, because they propel air at a high rate, then they are going to blow stuff off the floor, stuff out of the 
nooks and crannies in the room and they're going to swirl the entire room around. And if there's one person who's deposited some infection in one corner of the room and you stir the air up, it would diffuse and mix that, that infection throughout the air in the room more efficiently than would happen anyway. So what it comes down to really is how well ventilated a room is in terms of air changes because that really makes a difference and that's what people are learning to their cost and what many offices, many companies are discovering they're going to have to do in terms of changing their offices because just cooling the air in a room but you're recycling the air won't do anything to the potential infectivity of that air if there's a disease in it. But if you change the air and you go out with the old and in with the new and you replace dirty soil air with fresh air, that has a much lower infectious disease risk and so really it's going to come down to the the quality of the air that's in the room that you're stirring up and what's there already rather than whether the machine itself poses a threat. Sure. All right, let's take a final one. Let's listen to this voice note, Dr. Chris. Hey, I would like to know from the naked scientist, uh, why is it that nature in some ways seems to be able to maintain a balance between the number of boys or males and females uh, with regards to humans, why is it that it, they, they are almost equal? What do you make of that question, Dr. Chris? Almost equal, but not quite. Mm. And we, we find actually that there are slightly more males are conceived, but at all stages of the life course, males have a higher mortality rate, which helps to bring the number to about the 50-50, which mm. is being alluded to. Yeah. Now, the simple answer is it's down to genetics, because women have two X chromosomes, and if you therefore inherit one X from your mum and one X from your dad, you're going to be a girl. If you have an X and a Y, you're going to be a boy. So if you're a man, you are going to put into your sperms either an X chromosome or a Y chromosome. So therefore, the egg from the mum, which has only got Xs in it, is going to be fertilised by either an X or a Y sperm, therefore boy or girl, and because there are therefore equal numbers of sperm that have X and Y, you will have equal numbers of offspring, give or take, which are male and female. But because the Y chromosome is a bit smaller, bit lighter, and those sperm swim a bit faster, you will conceive slightly more boys than girls, but that is then reset by the fact that at all ages, boys have a slightly higher mortality rate than girls do which keeps things in balance. Lovely. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure as always. That's the Naked Scientist. It's so nice to catch up again, Ripple Way. <laughs> I hope we do this again. Absolutely. We'll, ma- we'll make a date for the future. <laughs> See you soon. Sure.